Ladies and gentlemen, please turn off all of your electronic devices. Make sure that your luggage is stowed and that your seat belts are securely fastened. And please focus your attention to the front of the cabin for our safety instructions. To which I go, blah, blah, blah. I've heard this a hundred times. I know, put my own mask on first and then help others, right? heard this a million times. If I'm seated in an exit row, I got to do all these things. Well, that might be you this morning as we begin a new sermon series. Okay, he's going to get up here and he's going to tell us all this background information, right? He's going to talk about the author. He's going to talk about the situation that John is writing to. He's going to talk about genre, which I can't even pronounce. Just tell us what the Bible says. Why do you got to get into all those details, all this background information? Well, I have to do that because it's important and it's helpful. It's helpful for us to have this information and to know what's going on for a few different reasons. First is that we can't read scripture in a vacuum. These things happened in a real time, in a real place, with real people, and real situations that these people were facing. The second thing is that it helps us appreciate how living and active God's word is. And we're going to see that in our text today. That 2,000 years later, this old letter still speaks to us in our present time and is still relevant for our lives in our day. And the third thing is that it's a reminder that there's always more to learn. There's always more to learn about God's word. And I'm not just talking about in an academic sense. I'm not talking about like you have to go to seminary in order to be able to read your Bible well. But, you know, I would encourage you if, you, if you're a student of the Bible, get a good study Bible that has notes that's going to help you understand these kinds of things. We don't just flip around and read a bunch of random verses and say, oh, that verse makes me feel good today. We study God's word and we try to understand the context. We try to understand the struggles that the people were going through. And as we go through 1 John, we're going to see the challenges and the struggles that they were facing. And we're going to see, again, how relevant those struggles are for the things that are going on in our world and in our culture today. I want to thank James for filling in when I was gone, preaching through 2nd and 3rd John. Uh, he already covered some of these topics, so there's going to be a, a little bit of a review, but it'll be helpful to hear them again. If you grab your uh, little insert there, the, the outline kind of the front page that's got all the tiny writing, the, the Bible Project outline there. Um, if you haven't yet been introduced to the Bible Project, I would encourage you, uh, you can go to their website, or you can go to YouTube, go look up Bible Project and look up First John. Basically, all of this here is, is on a video, and they, they go through the video, and they draw these things out as the video goes along, and they explain all of this. It's about nine minutes long. Uh, they explain 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, so you can kind of go get an overview. I'm not going to talk, talk about all these things today, but you can get a, a good overview of what the, these letters are about. And we'll just start right there in the upper left-hand corner. Another thing, I would encourage you, keep this in your Bibles uh, over the next 13 weeks as we're going through 1st John. It'll just be a helpful, a helpful tool to have. Uh, upper left corner there, 1st John, uh, the author we believe that it's John, the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, who wrote Second and Third John, who wrote Revelation. 
Uh, John is a little bit unique because First John is a little bit unique because it's anonymous. Uh, but there's there's good reason to believe uh, that it was written by John the Apostle, and most conservative scholars would would agree with that. Uh, there's all kinds of information and theories that would probably bore you to death. I'm not going to get into all that, uh, but you can dig into that if you're if you're interested. Uh, second thing, right next to that, is is the the crisis or the situation. Uh, There is a group of people who have left the church. They've left the fellowship. They've gone out uh, from among the people. Some people call them the secessionists. They've left. They've seceded. And they deny that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. And they've generated some hostility. Uh, They're trying to pull some Christians out of the fellowship. And John wrote these letters for damage control and to assure the churches. And we're going to get into that a little bit in a, in a few minutes here, why he's writing. Uh, it's not on here, but I would add to this that the recipients are those uh, probably in churches near, in, around, near Ephesus in Asia Minor. Uh, it's one of the reasons why we don't have a, a clear introduction of who it's written to is probably because it's a cyclical letter. It was meant to go around to different churches, so it's kind of written generically to churches in that area. And then kind of the, to the right side on the top there of the big banner thing, the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, it says the uniqueness of 1st John. Now, they, off, they argue here, and most scholars argue that 1st uh, John is not a letter in the typical sense of a letter because it doesn't really have an introduction and a conclusion like a lot of the letters have. Uh, they call it a poetic sermon. Uh, so it's kind of helpful to think about that, that John is kind of, kind of written, 1st John is kind of written more as a sermon. Um, but for the sake of ease and just familiarity, I'm going to call it a letter kind of throughout this series, but, but just to kind of know, um, that's kind of a little bit more what it's about. And then all the key ideas come from Jesus' final speech in John chapters 13 to 17. And I mentioned this last week, the upper room, uh, discourse of Jesus and his disciples in John chapter 13 to 17 is really where a lot, of, a lot of these details come from. So as we're going through 1 John, if you're kind of, maybe if you're like a little aimless in your Bible reading right now, or if you don't have a, a great plan that you're following, I would encourage you to take some time and, and dig into to John chapters 13 to 17. And if you finish that, go back and read the whole Gospel of John. It's a great, uh, great book. But uh, a lot of the themes that we see throughout the Gospel of John are going to be present here in 1 John as well. And then uh, the final thing is kind of that right side where that box is crossed out is his method of writing. Now, this is very interesting. So he, John does not write in a linear fashion. Uh, it's, not, it's not the way we typically would like write a paper or make an argument. He doesn't have an intro and then, you know, one, two, three, and then a conclusion. It's not linear in that way. Um, John actually uses a different method of, of writing called amplification. And so it's, it's cyclical, and there's a lot of repetition, and he keeps coming back to these same ideas over and over. Uh, some people call it like a spiraling argument. And this is challenging for our Western minds, because we want to say, just tell me what you're going to tell me, and then tell me what you told me you're going to tell me, and then explain to me why, you know, conclude it, and explain to me why you told me what you just told me. Instead, John's going to keep cycling back and going over these same things over and over. So, you know, for me, having experienced living in China for a while and kind of the Eastern mindset, this is a little bit, this is more of like how a Chinese sermon would sound. Like the pastor would get up and 
And it's just going to, like, we're going to sound like, where are you going? Like, I can't follow you at all. But this is what, this is the method that John is using. And this is, this is his way of emphasizing things and keep coming back to these things over and over. So he's going to use hyperbole. He's going to use a lot of stark contrasts. We're going to see life and death, light and darkness. And then you kind of see in those spirals there, life, love, and truth. Those are three of the big themes. Okay, if you flip over to the back. What is John trying to communicate to us, and what are the themes that he's using in this cyclical or spiraling method of writing? I think the main theme and the purpose of 1 John is assurance. He's writing to assure them of what is true, and this is pretty much agreement of of all the, the evangelical scholars that the kind of the theme verse of 1 John where this where we see this is 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, where John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. In other words, it's written to strengthen the faith of the Christian community, not just individual Christians. It's not just written so that you personally would know, but it's so that you as a body, that you would know that you belong to Christ and that you have eternal life. So John's readers are urged to examine themselves according to three tests. And each test contains foundational elements of the Christian life, which John comes back to repeatedly in this letter. So pay attention to this, because we're gonna, this, this is kind of good background for where we're going. We're going to see these things over and over. The first is the theological test. Now this is the test of truth. The question is, do we believe? Do we believe what is true? And I have on their head slash no. We talk about head, heart, and hands, kind of a holistic approach. With our head, we know, right? We know what is true. If you look at the front of your worship guide, our, our vision as a church is we're a community of Christ followers called to know, love, and serve God and others. So we talk about head, heart, hands, knowing, loving, and serving. And we're going to see all three of these elements come out in these three tests. The first test is a theological test. The second test, bottom left there, is the moral test. It's the test of righteousness. The question is, do we obey? Do we obey Christ's commandments? Do we do what God has told us to do? And that's going to be another thing that John's going to come back to over and over in this letter. And that's the hands and serving. The right side, the social test. Love. Do we love? Do we love God, and do we love others? And that is our heart. So head, heart, hands, no love, serve, uh, theology, morality, and this social idea of loving. Great summary of kind of how all these fit together. James Boyce, the quote on the bottom there, it says, Love without righteousness is immorality. We see that a lot in our culture, don't we? Just Love, I can love whoever I want, I can love whatever I want, but love without righteousness is immorality. Righteousness without doctrine or truth is legalism. If we're just saying, I'm a good person, I do the right thing, I try really hard, but it's not grounded in the truth of who God is, it's not grounded in the gospel of grace, then all we have is legalism. Doctrine, truth, without love is bitter orthodoxy. If all we have is, well, hey, we just know all the right things, right? 
But we're just cold and dead. We don't love God. We don't love our neighbor. There's just bitter orthodoxy. And Boyce says all three of these elements must be present in the life of any true and growing Christian. I'm going to add to the end of his quote, and any true and biblically faithful church. If these elements, truth, righteousness, and love, if these are not evident here, if they're not a part of our own lives and a part of our church, then we're either immoral, legalistic, or just bitter orthodoxy. And we don't want to be those things, any of those things. Okay? So let's, let's go and let's journey with John in this as we see these things. But you might, you might hear all of this. You might hear me say all of this. You might look at this and you might feel overwhelmed. I think it's easy for us to feel like it's up to us to live the Christian life in a way that our witness in this world is effective. And it's a good thing to want to have an effective witness in this world. But when God doesn't work according to our timing, or when we don't see the fruit that we expect to see, it's easy for us to rely on unbiblical methods or or worldly ways of doing things in order to convince the world that Jesus is who he said he is and that Christianity is true. Or we just simply give up hope altogether. In a world with so many competing ideas, in the face of so many challenges to our faith, can we really know that what we believe is true? Can we really have assurance of not only our own salvation, but the trustworthiness of the message that we have been called to proclaim to the world around us? James Boyce, in his commentary, He talks about the challenge that the early church faced to abandon the truth of the incarnation and Christ's atoning sacrifice for sin. To give ground, to give way so that the gospel would be more popular or more palatable to the Greek world around them. Listen to what he says. He says, if Christianity is no more than a set of ideas, then it is no more valid than any other philosophy. Its truths are relative True now, or true for some people, but not true in any absolute sense. And its values are pragmatic, good only if they help. Such a system can obviously be phased out. On the other hand, if, as John teaches, Christianity is more than ideas, if it is something unique that God has done in history, then it has a claim to being true for everyone and true for all time. Moreover, it requires that a person become conformed to the revelation of God which it embodies rather than that the faith constantly be readjusted to the individual or to modern thinking. This concern is uppermost in John's mind at many points throughout the epistle, but nowhere more than in the opening verse in which he, verses in which he stresses faith's historical character. So let's go to those opening verses. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. 
That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. The title of the message this morning is A Well-Established Witness. And in these first four verses here, John is laying the foundation for the trustworthiness and the reliability of the testimony and the witness of the apostles concerning Jesus. And this foundation is what he will build upon as he reassures the Christians he is writing to of what they know to be true and reminds them not to follow the false teachings of those who have left the church and are trying to draw them away from Jesus. So if you're following your, along in your outline there on the, the back of the announcement sheet, the first kind of main point here is that there, the witness is established upon the revelation of the eternal Son of God. It's established upon the revelation of the eternal Son of God. Verses 1 and 2 in 1 John in the beginning here are almost a little bit cryptic sounding. I'm going to read them again. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Now imagine hearing these words read for the first time. Imagine maybe this is the first time you've ever gone to a Christian church. You're there in the early church And the pastor stands up and reads John's letter. And after these first two verses, you're thinking, what have I gotten myself into? Who are these crazy people and what is he talking about? Well, it's very similar. You may have noticed some similarities to the language at the beginning of John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Which also has some cryptic sounding things to it. As John does in his gospel account, he's going to tell us here that the word, this life, This eternal life, this light of men, is Jesus Christ. And for John, a proper Christology, which is just a fancy word for what we believe about Christ, what our theology of Christ is, a proper Christology is foundational to the whole Christian life. We're going to be seeing this throughout 1 John. Who is Jesus If we get that wrong, we lose the gospel. If we get that wrong, we lose the hope and assurance that we have that Christianity alone has to offer the world. And if you've been here very long, you've probably heard me say this and hammer this point over and over and over. No other world religion teaches what Christianity teaches That we can be certain, that we can know with certainty and surety that we know God and that we have eternal life. 
Because every other system, every other philosophy is based on how am I doing? It's based on my effort. It's based on how much have I put into it? Are the scales tipped in my favor? Only Jesus, only the gospel says, it's nothing that you can do. It's what's been already done for you. And this is why we believe in Christ-centered, expository preaching, preaching through the Bible. This needs to be the steady diet of God's people. That's why we spent almost an entire year going through the book of Genesis. And Christ-centered preaching does not mean that every sermon is just a rehashing of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. 1 John doesn't even mention the resurrection directly. But we're going to be talking about things like Jesus' pre-existence, his incarnation, his perfect and sinless life that he lived on our behalf. All these things inform our view of the atonement of Jesus dying in our place as, our substitute, as a substitute for our sin. This is something that John's opponents got wrong because their wrong views about Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God. And for us, these things are not up for debate. I'm fine to be accused of theological nitpicking on certain issues. As reform types, we, we tend to do that. We get a little nitpicky on certain things. But not on these issues. Christ alone, or there's no gospel left. That is something I'm willing to be nitpicky about. And here's the key for all of this. This witness is established upon the revelation of the eternal Son of God. In verse 2, John says, the life was made manifest. Other translations translate that word as revealed. It's a, it's a passive verb. It's, God did it, right? God showed us his son. God stepped into time. God has told us what is true. He has spoken. We're not making this stuff up. It's not something that we have done. God has spoken. I think one of the biggest challenges in our day with all the different things competing for people's attention, people are asking, how can I know what is true? Or is anything true at all? And as I read earlier from the, the, the quote from James Boyce, if Christianity is just another set of ideas, if it's just one option in the ever-increasing pool of choices in our secular age, if God hasn't revealed himself in history in the person of Jesus Christ, then we might as well pack it up and go home and stop believing in this fairy tale. But it wasn't a fairy tale for John and the apostles. They were willing to lay down their lives for Jesus. Ten out of the eleven apostles, not including Judas, ten out of the eleven were martyred for their faith. Only John here, as we know from tradition, John is the only one who lived into old age and, and died a natural death. So we saw that first it was established upon 
the revelation of the eternal Son of God, their witness, then their witness is established upon the proclamation and eyewitness experience of the apostles. Mentioned that the apostles were martyred. The Greek word for martyr is the root word of where we get the word testify or bear witness. It's one of John's favorite words to use. He uses it 47 times throughout all of his writings, way more than any other New Testament author. Verse 2, he says, we testify, that's this word where we, the connection with, with martyr, we testify and we proclaim. And then the word proclaim, he's going to use it again in verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Now, getting a little technical here just for a second. If you, if you read through this and you see, like if you're reading the ESV, there's a hyphen after verse 1 and before verse 3. It, like it doesn't really read very well in English. Um, some commentators have called this, these four verses a grammatical tangle. Um, it really is just it's super confusing uh, the way John wrote it. Um, but we don't get the main verb um, you know, we usually in, in English have subject, verb, object. We don't even get the main verb until verse 3, and it's proclaim. We proclaim. So John starts off with all these relative clauses, that which was from the get- beginning, which we have seen, which we have heard, which we have, which we have, which we have. Like, we don't, we don't write that way and then finally get to what we're talking about, but that's what John does here. So we proclaim is, is the, how this should all start. And some translations actually kind of take that we proclaim and stick it in the beginning so you know what John's actually trying to say. So we proclaim is, is what this whole section is about here. What are they testifying to and what are they proclaiming? Simple. It's Jesus. That he is fully God and that he is fully man. And these are things that are being denied by the false teachers that John is addressing. We see that Jesus is fully God because he starts off, that which was from the beginning. Again, there's the echoes of of John chapter 1. The eternal life. He calls Jesus the eternal life. He cannot be that which was from the beginning and the eternal life. If he is simply a man, he must be God. But he is also fully man. This is where their eyewitness experience matters so much. Pay attention to what John says here and look at these sensory verbs that he uses. That which we have heard, we have heard it with our own ears. That's in verses 1 and 3. We have seen with our eyes. In verses 1, 2, and 3, he repeats that word three times. We have seen with our eyes. We have looked upon and we have touched with our hands. Those are both in verse 1. Now the words looked upon and touched here are both in the past tense. So they are things that John and the other apostles, they saw Jesus, they beheld him, and they touched him. That is a unique experience that they got to do. It was a one-time thing. It happened in the past. But you want to know something that's awesome? 
The words here, heard, that's used twice, and seen three times, are in the perfect tense. And you might be saying, nerd alert, nerd alert, you know, what's this guy talking about? This is amazing, okay? And it's, again, we don't necessarily, this doesn't just come out in our English reading of this. But the perfect tense, if the past tense is something that happened, if we want to draw it, we just could draw a dot, right? This happened on a timeline in history. Got a little diagram, okay? The perfect tense is a dot in history, that something happened. But then there's an arrow that means it has continuing consequences, it's not that we, that we saw one time. We have seen and we continue to see. We have heard and we continue to hear. It's not just something that was a one-time event. Christ continues to speak today and we continue to hear his words. And this is the gospel message it's not only true for John and the disciples who physically saw and touched Jesus. It is true for us as we sit here today, 2,000 years later. As we continue to see and as we continue to hear what he has to say for, to us. Remember after Jesus rose from the dead, he's there. The, the, the disciples are there that evening. They're behind closed doors. The doors are locked and they're afraid. And Jesus comes, walks right through the door, right? He says, peace be with you. And then he shows them his hands and his side. But one of the disciples, Thomas, wasn't there at the time. And when he showed up and the the other disciples told him that they had seen the Lord, do you remember what he said? Unless I see the nail marks in his hands. Unless I can place my finger in the mark and touch him with my own hands, what? I will never believe. What a picture of our skeptical age. Prove it, Christian. Prove that Jesus is real. And what a picture of our own hearts. But Jesus, as he so kindly and graciously does, confronts Thomas in his unbelief. He appears to him again eight days later. Not eight minutes later or eight hours later. Eight days he waits. He comes again through a locked door And stands before them and says, peace be with you. And then he turns to Thomas. Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas replies, my Lord and my God. You know, we call him Doubting Thomas. He was unbelieving Thomas. Jesus came. He came to him and hear these words after Thomas made his confession. Have you believed because you have seen me? 
Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And here's the strange paradox for us. We haven't seen, right? But we have. And this is what John is trying to communicate to this early church and to us 2,000 years later. With the eyes of faith, we have seen and we have touched and we have believed. And our belief is well-grounded because Jesus has been revealed to us by God the Father. And because the eyewitness testimony of the apostles is true. And finally, it has been written down for us for a purpose. Lastly, they're established in writing with purposes for God's people. John gives an important purpose in verse 3 related to their proclamation. He says, We proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, we're not going to dig too much into this word fellowship today, but we're going to be talking about it a lot next week in verses 5 through 10. So that's one of his main purposes here, so that they would have fellowship with each other and with God and with Jesus. But then in verse 4, he gives us his purpose for writing. Pay attention to this this word here, because we're going to be seeing it over and over in 1 John. Thirteen times John is going to say, I am writing or I write to you. And many times it's going to be for a purpose. He's going to tell them why he's writing to them. We saw that at the, on the card here, 1 John 5, 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So that's the purpose of the whole book. But here he says, I'm writing so that our joy may be complete. Well, what on earth does that mean? I think John here is expressing his pastoral concern for the church. And it's tied to this idea of fellowship and unity in Christ and the truth of the gospel. I would say that there's no joy, there's no true joy where there's no true fellowship. There's no true joy in the Christian life where there's not fellowship with God and fellowship with other Christians. There's no joy if the false teachers are leading God's people astray. John desires them to experience true joy in Christ together. I was thinking about this idea of joy. I was thinking about my own life. I'm a person who struggles with joy. Um, if I... If, Someone, I don't know if anyone's ever asked you, like, you know, look, look at the list of the fruit of the Spirit and what's one of the things you want to be, like, praying for over the next, you know, period of your life or whatever. If I read through that list, love, joy, peace, patience, joy is always the thing that st- jumps out at me. It's always the thing that I'm like, God, I want more joy. I want more joy in you. But I wonder if this whole time I've been thinking about it incorrectly. Has it just been about me and about my individual experience of joy? That I just want to have joy, just just joy between me and the Lord? John says he wants their joy to be complete. Can there be complete joy apart from fellowship with God's people? 
And for me, it's, it, as I reflect on it, it's not that I've never sought fellowship with God's people, but have I been seeking joy in relationship to fellowship with God's people? And I think you could add that to any of the fruits of the Spirit, right? We don't, it's not just things that we get so we have this certain feeling of emotion in our own relationship with God. It's things that need to impact our lives as we live among other Christians. And so I'm challenged as I read this when I think about praying for joy. John in 2 John 12 and and in 3 John uh, 4, I think he kind of makes this connection. 2 John 12 at the end he says, Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The joy is completed when they're together, when he's seeing them face to face. And then in 3 John 4, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Now, I would apply that as my biological children. And then as a pastor to my congregation, I want to say, it brings me great joy to see us walking in the truth. And so maybe I've been seeking joy in the wrong way. Maybe I need to realize how fellowship with God's people should be a huge fuel for my joy. And being able to to see you all walk in the truth and trust Christ, that should bring me great joy. And it does. (laughs) But I'm very challenged by this, even as as I process through these things. But even as I seek joy in that area, even as I seek joy in my relationship with the Lord, there is a reality that this complete joy that John talks about, in one sense, it has to wait until eternity. That we will not have truly complete and fulfilled joy in this life. It's because we live in a sinful and broken world. We're reminded often of our need for the cross. And we're pointed forward to the future hope that we have in Christ. And as we mentioned, our hearing and our seeing... It has happened already, but it continues to happen. It continues as we hear and we see God's written word. It continues as we hear Jesus' words and we see and we taste and we touch him in the sacrament. There's not anything magical that's happening here in the bread and the wine, but there is a seeing, there is a tasting, there is a touching with the eyes of faith. There is a hearing of the gospel promise coming to us again and again. As we are invited to the table to partake and to participate 